Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called The Strange Case of the Christchurch Horse Fiend. It was written by press feature writer Philip Matthews, who joins me now. Hi, Philip. Hi, Michael. Please elaborate. The Strange Christchurch Horse Fiend. Case of the Horse Fiend. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. I came across the Horse Fiend while I was doing some research for the 160th anniversary of the press, and I was amazed that I'd never heard about this story before. It seems to have disappeared from Christchurch history. This weird story of of these uh, unsolved murders of more than 26 horses over five years that seemed to have caused this kind of moral panic in the city kind of disappeared from history in a way. Yeah, so as well as being a strange story and quite a ghoulish story in some respects, it says a little bit more, like you say, there's a moral panic. Um, Killing horses in the 1890s is is different to doing so now, yeah? Yeah, because these these were working horses, so essentially you're attacking someone's uh, property. It was like if you attacked a tractor or a car, it was your means of transport, it was your means of making a living. And I was really struck by... Every time a new horse was killed, the papers would make an effort to say how much it was worth, as though you know this this was the point. It was like now we talk about how much houses are worth. In those days, you know, it was a horse was four hundred pounds or a hundred pounds. It was really important to know. Any takeaways from this from the end? I mean, how did you, when you got to the end of this? This is a story unlike anything you would encounter today. One in the type of crime, but also the way it was reported and the way it was. Um, treated and encountered at the time. How did you feel at the end of it? Well, it's unsolved, so there's that frustration. And I have this hope that somehow someone who reads it or hears this will know something. Maybe (laughs) it's very unlikely, but maybe there's a great-great-grandson of somebody who left a diary behind or said something. Um, The other takeaways I I got from this were how fascinated the papers were with the very gruesome details of the killings in a way that I'm not sure we would write about this now in the same way and some of the colourful language became quite gothic. It's fascinating to read this stuff. Well if any listeners do have any information leading to the identity of the Christchurch Horse Fiend, please email it Philip Matthews. It is a 125 year old cold case but we, and there's no information other than um, what we have in the story but if you know anything Please be in touch. All right. Without further ado, and as we should say, including some graphic detail, here is Philip Matthews reading his story, The Strange Case of the Christchurch Horse Fiend. They thought that Royal George was killed sometime between 10pm and 4am. He would have died in complete darkness on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning near the end of summer in Christchurch at the close of the 19th century. The press reported it on the morning of Monday, February 6, 1899. There was a grim, dreadful weight to the news, which was another instalment in a bizarre local crime spree. But there was an escalation as well. The story was both more dramatic and even stranger this time. With deadly malignance and unerring cunning, the press told its shocked readers... 
the creature who has earned himself the name of the Horse Fiend, has after an interval of three months and a half, again resumed his horrid work. The weekend's activities were believed to have brought the so-called Horse Fiend's tally to 26 dead horses over roughly five years in different corners of Christchurch in the 1890s. Royal George was a 10-year-old stallion owned by Mrs M. H. Scarlett of Scarlett's Brewery on Fendleton Road. He was a working horse who pulled brewery carts. He was stabbed in the neck about six inches from the angle of the jaw and his jugular vein was cut, which was the killer's usual method. He was found at 6.45am in an orchard at the back of the brewery. By then it was light, and the man who discovered him, a local named Fred Cutton, who was walking to a stream behind the orchard to do some fishing, saw that the ground was saturated with blood. He told brewery employee Pat Cunningham, who alerted the police. Royal George was an aged horse, the press said, dark bay in colour, and about 15 hands in height, and was worth about 20 pounds. After killing Royal George, the horse fiend made his way north. He left a colt lying dead in a 14-acre paddock next to Bly's Road, Papanui. On Norman's Road, Merivale, he stabbed a skewballed pony stallion he encountered on the street. But he missed the jugular vein, and the pony, owned by a coach proprietor named Mr Box, survived. A group of ten policemen, led by Inspector Thomas Broham, began combing the crime scenes in the morning. They observed that the killer must have driven the Papanui horse into a distant corner of the paddock, where the ground was hard and bare, because of the direction of the trail of blood that was left behind. The colt was only two years old, and was worth more than thirty pounds. Another horse in the paddock, a filly, had not been touched. Some of these details had become all too familiar to readers. The dead horse, the dead of night, the knife, the jugular vein. But there was a new feature that was utterly unusual. The Horse Protection Society, who the press believed were smarter than the police, had brought over a specialist from Australia. The reporter explained that a tall black individual with the unmistakable cast of countenance of the Australian Aborigine was at once noticed scrutinising the ground and a whisper went round. It is a black tracker. The so-called black tracker, who the newspapers named as Charlie Hooper, had secretly been in Christchurch for three months and had been staying in the home of Richard Allen of Fendleton waiting to be deployed at just such a time. Like hundreds of other Aboriginal men who had worked for the police in New South Wales, Hooper was skilled at looking for tracks and tiny disturbances in the grass, the signs in nature that others, especially Europeans, could not see. Inspector Brougham apparently knew about the usefulness of trackers from his time in Victoria. 
Even though too much time had passed before the police were notified, it had rained heavily and the scene had been disturbed by onlookers. The tracker still managed to pick up two trails at Bly's Road. The first was made by the boy who discovered the dead horse in the morning. The second, made by a distinctive boot print, led to a man with a satisfactory alibi. Hooper was then taken to the site of the first killing of the night, at Mrs Scarlett's brewery on Fendleton Road, but the police got in the way. As the press reported, it is said that when investigating the surroundings in connection with the affair at the orchard, the tracker picked up a track which he started out to follow. Two enthusiastic members of the force came to help him, and pushing on ahead obliterated the marks. The tracker is reported to have been much disgusted at this. As the tracker had been brought over privately, the Canterbury Agricultural and Pastoral Association asked the government to pay for him to stay. The government declined, and the tracker returned to Australia. The story grew in the telling. According to a history of the Christchurch Police, sharing the challenge by Barry Thompson and Robert Nielsen, it is believed the tracker came close to apprehending the fiend, but no police record of the case survives to confirm the story which for many years persisted in police folklore. The horse fiend killed at least 26 horses in the dead of night. He was never caught, but the police may have known who he was. Sources disagree on exactly when the attacks began, but the possible first victim was a horse whose jugular vein was fatally severed in December 1894 in a site known as Raven's Paddock between Gloucester Street and Worcester Street. Five other horses belonging to the same owner, a confectioner named Mr W. Thompson, were unharmed. The killer had selected only the most valuable one. A little over a month later in Rickerton, a trotting stallion called Brooklyn was killed in the same way and found dead in the morning. A few days later, another horse was dead with its throat cut in a paddock near Christ College. The killer wasn't called the Horse Fiend by the newspapers until September 1895, presumably when reporters and police realised that these deaths were the work of one person. That was when a horse named Tom Sayers who had won country race meetings, was found dead in a paddock at Jackson's Road, Fendleton. There were more. A valuable draft horse was killed in New Brighton. A large and valuable stallion named Prince Irvington was stabbed on a farm at Cheney's Corner, north of Christchurch. That horse belonged to Joseph Cheney, grandson of George Cheney, an early Canterbury settler. A killing in a paddock near the Sunnyside Asylum a story that the killer was a patient who sneaked out at night. A burst of activity around Canterbury Anniversary Day in 1896 was followed by a terrible attack a year later. A pony stallion named What's Wanted, owned by Woodend farmer Joseph Stalker, who valued it at £100, was stabbed to death in his box at the showgrounds in Addington. A veterinary surgeon found that the weapon must have been a stiletto blade at least 14 inches long and so thin that the hole in the skin was barely perceptible. The blade had pierced the animal's heart and it bled internally. 
Whoever did this was an expert, the surgeon said, and was likely to have been the same person who had killed others in the same way. It is a curious fact that a similar, dastardly act was committed exactly a year ago when two horses were found stabbed on show day, the press said. But did his methods sometimes change? A stallion named Young Brooklyn, sired by Brooklyn, who had been killed more than two years earlier, was poisoned with the herb Annika, but survived. The next day, two horses in Rusley died in agony from poisoning, and parts of their stomachs were submitted for analysis. On another occasion, a horse was found dead in a creek in Papua Nui. A wound in the centre of the forehead looked like a bullet hole but was probably inflicted by a blacksmith's hammer. Was all this the work of the same man? There was a more traditional victim only a day or two after that, when a black stallion named Zulu was killed in a stable on Clyde Road, Fendleton, on Christmas Eve, 1897. This horse, owned by Mr W. F. M. Buckley of Dunsandall, was valued at £400, and had bled to death from a neck wound. The press counted the score and noticed the sinister patterns, including a tendency to strike on holidays. With the astuteness which has characterised his actions since the time, December 13th, three years ago, when he killed his first horse, the wretch left no trace of his identity, and no clue by which his dastardly crime could be sheeted home to him. During three years, he has killed 17 horses, whose aggregate value is nearly a thousand pounds. During three years, the police have strained every nerve to catch him, and yet the only result has been that he has grown more audacious. He has confined himself to no part of the suburbs in particular, but has swooped down at one time on Sockburn and at another on Cheney's Corner, in opposite directions from the city. On occasion, he has killed as many as four horses in one night. He shows a marked partiality, this miscreant, to Christmas Eves and show nights, when his fellows are enjoying themselves. Buckley was a notable name, a distinguished Canterbury farmer who was on the board of the Agricultural and Pastoral Association. The press was perplexed. It would be hard to imagine him having an enemy in the wide world. The paper carried a vivid account of the attack on Zulu. After the wound had been inflicted, the poor animal apparently walked round and round its box as the straw was very much trampled and the walls bespattered with blood. In its dying agonies, the beast must have kicked frequently, for the lower part of the walls were cut and scored by its hoofs. The horse fiend hit Hallswell in March 1898, killing the five-year-old thoroughbred stallion Chain Armour, who staggered 300 yards across a paddock before falling into a watercourse under some willow trees. It was described as a quiet, friendly animal, and had probably been dead for a day when he was found. As with Zulu, the horse had a distinguished owner. Charles Lewis was an independent member of Parliament who farmed at Hallswell and was the son of an early settler, David Lewis. How many more horses are to be done to death in this way before the perpetrator is detected, 
the Otago Witness newspaper asked. The police can scarcely be blamed, as they cannot watch out-of-the-way places, and I know they have been shadowing suspects for months, but so far without success. It is evident that the brute, whoever he is, is not an ordinary butcher, but someone whose scientific knowledge aids him in carrying out his dastardly work. Two more horses were killed in Upper Rickerton in October 1898. Both had been sired by Brooklyn, who had been one of the horse fiend's first victims. One of them was young Brooklyn, who had survived a poisoning about nine months earlier. Again, patterns suggested themselves. One of the horses in Upper Rickerton had been shot, and the other stabbed. The press thought the latest acts of this despicable individual appear to be the most daring of any yet accomplished. Three detectives and extra security was added to that year's AMP show to keep careful watch. But there were no incidents then, nor at Christmas, and the story was quiet until February 1899, and the attacks in Fendleton, Merivale and Papua Nui that were even more daring than those in Upper Rickerton. That was when the so-called Black Tracker, who had spent three months in hiding, emerged and did his best to pick up a trail that remained elusive. The story may have stopped there, but there was another killing before the close of 1899. That was in Dunsandle, where a two-year-old draft gelding was found dead with a puncture wound in his throat. However, some sources, including Thompson and Nielsen, consider it to have been a copycat attack. Either way, the horse fiend, whoever he was, seemed to have ended his activities before the end of the century. The horse fiend became a national story. Newspapers the length of New Zealand carried updates, and columnists waxed lyrical about the nature of evil. When there were attacks in other places that seemed to be the work of copycats, or possibly the creepily omnipresent killer himself, it only added to a sense of fin de siècle fear. Fin de siècle, that French term that means the end of the century, described a time often marked by indifference and decadence, and anxiety about what the future held. Sometimes it also held an idea about hope, and a sweeping away of the old ways. In any case, the end of a century that had seen enormous social and economic change seemed to be the right time for a story as strange as that of the horse fiend. Comparisons were often made with more famous unsolved murders in London from only a few years earlier, which were still present in the minds of New Zealanders. The press described Jack the Ripper, who had killed between 5 and 11 women between 1888 and 1891, as the horse fiend's prototype in crime. Both killers had unknown motives. A letter writer to the Star argued against the idea that the police weren't doing enough to catch the horse fiend by pointing out that Jack the Ripper had a longer run under the very noses of the best force in the world and is not captured yet. The Ashburton Guardian assumed that the fiend is a monomaniac, since no sane man could commit such objectless crimes, and no absolute lunatic would have for so long escaped deception 
And if the killer suddenly changed his fancy for killing horses to one for killing men and women, we would be in the same position as England at the time when Jack the Ripper terrified the United Kingdom. Rumours grew and fear spread. The horse fiend may have poisoned horses, but did he also poison cattle? There was such a case in 1898 in Shirley at a homestead called Windsor Park. The next day, a poisoned horse was found dead in Wollstone. The general sense of dread and panic meant there were false alarms. Horses in Sumner and Linwood turned out to have injured themselves on pieces of glass. A horse in Dallington was scratched by a cow's horn, but the hair-trigger mood in the city was such that the horse fiend was immediately suspected. Was he even going further afield? There was a case at Speargrass Flat Road near Arrowtown in central Otago. Could that have been the same attacker? A horse was cut in Taranaki and another in Dunedin. There were rumours in Palmerston North and Nelson. Two horses were stabbed in the leg in Greytown in the Wairarapa. The horse fiend has made his appearance in Greytown, the press asserted. In Swanson, near Auckland, a horse was attacked with a spade or a tomahawk. Apparently a species of the horse fiend is about this neighbourhood, the New Zealand Herald said. Only weeks later, a Taranaki newspaper reported that the horse fiend epidemic appears to have reached the Auckland district. The other day some vitriol was thrown over a horse at Panmuir, and recently at Atahuhu a valuable animal was stabbed in the leg with a pitchfork. The poor brute was so badly injured that it had to be shot. The reward grew. Mr Thompson, the confectioner, whose horse was the first reported victim in 1894, had offered a reward of just £5. By 1897, the reward had reached £100. A year later, it was sitting at £500. Considering the number of valuable horses he has slain, it is to be hoped the large reward offered will soon place him inside the four walls of a jail or a lunatic asylum, the Otago witness said. By 1899, the press was urging the government to push the reward up to £1,000, so that the cupidity of his comrades may be sufficiently aroused to give information to the police. Someone must know something, the press argued. There can be no doubt that it would be impossible for anyone to stab horses in the way this man has been doing without getting the blood spurted over his clothes or signs of it appearing about his person. And if he's not some individual living wholly alone, whoever lives with him, must have some suspicions. Other stories showed how well known the story had become. Ash Burton was said to be affected by the bicycle fiend who slashed people's tyres. In Auckland, a man had been caught cutting pages out of books in the Lees Institute Reference Library, which drove the Waimati Daily Advertiser to a surprising comparison. The man who will not return borrowed books is bad enough, but the person who mutilates volumes belonging to other people stands in a class related to that in which the horse fiend belongs.
Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. Who was he? It was reported at the end of 1898 that more than 30 people had been under suspicion and that all but two or three of them had proved their innocence. There was no evidence against the others. The press said a year earlier that several people had been placed under surveillance, with the unvarying result that the police have found that they were watching an innocent man. At present, the police have more than one man under suspicion, and yesterday the detectives were at work, but without result. People were questioned, and houses searched, quite uselessly. A picture emerged of what kind of person could do this. It was assumed that the horse fiend was male. He operated alone, and probably lived alone. If he lived with or close to others... It would have been in a situation in which a person cleaning blood off themselves in their clothes was not unusual. He was mostly active between October and February, and quiet during the colder months. He was very skilled at what he did, and was both familiar with horses and unafraid of them. He would have had to scout his locations and targets during daylight. After the February 1899 cases, when three attacks took place on one night, It was noted that a police patrol introduced after the previous attack had only just been relaxed. This led to speculation that the horse fiend had knowledge of the plans and tactics of the police. Christchurch police were joined by police from Wellington and Dunedin on night duty. Bicycle patrols went out at night, beginning a long tradition of cycling policemen in the city. Night duty on foot had its limitations, Thompson and Nielsen wrote in their police history. The sad irony was that bikes soon replaced police horses. Yet the failure of the police to catch the killer became a growing frustration in Christchurch and beyond. Apart from the horse fiend, as a press letter writer put it, I might also draw attention to the large number of burglaries in and around Christchurch, which have remained undetected during recent years. And I wonder if the police force are to be commended for their stupidity in failing to secure the perpetrators thereof. Journalists, editors and the wider public were forthright with advice. Everyone was an amateur detective. Why had police in Christchurch not used bloodhounds, as police in London did during the hunt for Jack the Ripper? Had some coincidences been properly examined? Concerning the Christchurch horse fiend, there was needed a Sherlock Holmes to unravel the mystery of the midnight horse murderer, the South Canterbury Times declared in 1898. Does the fact that he began with Brooklyn, and, so far, finished with young Brooklyn, and that an attempt was previously made upon the latter, convey no hint? We would suggest that an investigation of the history of the Brooklyns might furnish some clue to the origin of the demoniac spite which has vented itself in the destruction of 21 horses in four years. As in other serial killer cases, 
there were false confessions and delusions. When a man named George Godfrey Shaw assaulted a woman at Burke's Pass in 1899, he told her he was the horse fiend, but he also told her he was Jack the Ripper. Shaw, a coach driver from Fairley, got two years hard labour. In the same year, a man who suffered from a delusion in which he believed that everyone thought he was the horse fiend and was trying to kill him, was charged with drunkenness and remanded for medical treatment. Both examples show the oversized presence the horse killer had in ordinary people's lives. There was a third, equally sad case, in which an elderly man was swindled by a former police officer who told him he would catch the horse fiend for a fee. The notoriety lasted long after the attacks stopped. When similar cases emerged overseas, the Christchurch story was an immediate reference. The first were the so-called Great Whirly Outrages in 1903, when attacks on horses, cows and sheep in an English village were attributed to a probably fictional Whirly gang. The cases fascinated authors from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to Julian Barnes, because it led to a possible miscarriage of justice. An Anglo-Indian man, George Adalji, was convicted, but Conan Doyle campaigned for his pardon. New Zealanders were reminded again of the horse fiend in 1923, when a 40-year-old labourer named James Haffey pleaded guilty to four charges of killing horses in Melbourne during a year in which more than 100 horses were killed. The Crown Prosecutor quoted from medical opinion that said Haffey was a mental defective and that his crimes could be attributed to a form of sadism. Does that diagnosis tell us anything about the killer in the Christchurch cases? Motivation can be hard to establish, especially in historical cases, according to Professor Nicola Taylor of the University of Canterbury's New Zealand Centre for Human-Animal Studies. Horse mutilations are not all historical, Taylor says. There has recently been a slew of them in France, and there was a mass outbreak in the UK in the 1990s. In some places, such as South Africa, horse and livestock mutilations have sometimes been in retaliation for sales that have gone wrong, or against people who refuse to sell. That would be a simple revenge motive. The fact that some owners were wealthy and fairly well known in the Christchurch cases could suggest a similar motive. There has also been a sexual motive on occasion. There was a hint at such a motive in Christchurch. In one of the very last cases, it was said that Royal George's hind quarters were mutilated. But we overlook how many horses were in cities at the end of the 19th century, in stables near homes, and as working horses, Taylor says. They were much more plentiful and much more accessible to people. It also means crimes probably went unreported unless they were unusual. Only animal cruelty cases that were really gruesome became high profile. Is there something about an attack on horses that seems more shocking than attacks on other farm animals? Maybe horses get more attention because they can be pets, 
and we do love them more than we love cows, Taylor says. We tend to see our pets as persons, as members of the family, and as individuals. Whereas animals that are killed for food, we tend to see at an aggregate level, like cows, as opposed to Bessie, who's an individual. As well as the sense that valuable property was destroyed, shown by the emphasis on how much the horses were worth in the Christchurch stories, the animals were loved and considered to be individuals, with names and even personalities. In many ways it's parallel to human mutilation, Taylor says. It's more of a shock, because we believe animals are innocent. It puts it over into how horrified we are by child abuse. We don't like that innocent beings are abused. Animals have a status that slaves once had for us as sentient property, according to a leading expert, Piers Byrne from the University of Southern Maine. Byrne's paper on the attacks in the UK in the 1990s was titled Horse Maiming in the English Countryside, Moral Panic, Human Deviance and the Social Construction of Victimhood. Byrne goes further into animal rights arguments, asking if it is speciesist to worry about attacks on animals as precursors to attacks on people, rather than in their own right, and wondering why we condemn horse maiming and mutilation, but allow horses to die for our entertainment in the racing industry. In 1900, a year after the last known attack, the Littleton Times declared confidently that the person known as the horse fiend is either dead or in an asylum. Inspector Thomas Brougham, who led the search, retired in February of that year due to ill health and died of pneumonia in Rome in December while on holiday with his wife. Obituaries remembered his role in catching the infamous Auckland arsonist Cyrus Haley in 1872, not the failure of the horse fiend. Over the years that followed, as false alarms came and went, and comparisons were made with other attacks, the police who chased the horse fiend occasionally reflected in public on the strange, draining and frustrating episode. Nothing nags at an officer like an unsolved crime, and this bizarre case continued to trouble those who tried to solve it. One of them was the well-respected chief detective William Crystal, who retired in 1908 as medically unfit on account of his deafness. While he was remembered for helping to solve a murder in Auckland in 1893, it was reported that the horse fiend had caused the detective a great deal of worry. Crystal attributed his hearing loss and other physical effects to the hardships he endured during the investigation when he was on duty round the clock. He states that, as a result of his investigations, he, with the help of his intelligence staff, succeeded in putting a complete stop to the horse-stabbing nuisances, according to a media report in 1921, when Crystal was petitioning to have his superannuation increased. A profile of a Sergeant Castles who, according to the Dominion newspaper, was even considered fair and likeable by the criminals he apprehended, touched on his posting to Christchurch at the end of the 19th century. He spent four years there, including 18 months consecutive night duty, planted in stables and behind hedges on the lookout for the horse fiend, who was perpetrating his vile outrages at the time. 
Another policeman, speaking anonymously to the Star in 1930, gave an account of the search and also talked about the toll it took on the health of his colleagues. Detectives and policemen for several months spent many miserable nights in swampy paddocks awaiting a visit from the criminal at farmsteads, but he was never caught, the policeman said. Whether the police ever had a definite clue as to his identity, I was never able to discover. But I do know that a warrant was issued in regard to one suspect, but it was never executed. He added that Detective Richard Marsak, who had recently died, was a prominent officer on the trail of the horse fiend, and his health was greatly affected by the nightly vigils. The most fascinating details appeared in yet another profile of a retired policeman. This was Sergeant Alfred Ernest Rowell, who was interviewed by the Auckland Star in 1932, when he left the force after 40 years. Originally from Cornwall, England, Rowell was at Linwood Station during the time of the horse fiend, when, the Auckland Star claimed, over 60 horses were mysteriously done to death by a maniac who used a peculiar two-pointed dagger. Rowell left readers with this tantalising, possibly infuriating memory. Although the man responsible was never caught, we knew who it was, as the crime suddenly stopped when a certain man in Christchurch died. Rowell himself died in 1958, and probably took his secret with him to the grave. That was A Strange Case of the Christchurch Horse Fiend on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Philip Matthews and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.